Thanks for listening to the nice podcast. I'm Dave Delaney. If you haven't noticed, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus over the last several months. Uh, A big revelation was found. I have ADHD, and that explains a whole lot. And of course, naturally, as a veteran podcaster, I started another podcast all about it, and it's called ADHD Wise Squirrels, and you can find it at wisequirrels.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search ADHD Wise Squirrels. Pop over and have a listen. Let me know what you think. Thanks. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. The people that we screwed up with not had nothing to do with moving. We, we messed them up. It usually was a billing error on our fault, on our part. And they had to call us and we resolved their issue. Every one of those, the, the average person in that group stayed longer after that problem and spent more money. Mm-hmm. And what we did some interviewing and we figured out that if we've been perfect with you, you don't know how we handle problems. Yeah. If we've if we've messed up and handled it well, you know how we handle it. You're you're genuinely happy about it, and so therefore you're not worried about the, what's going to happen if it happens again. Nice, 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 nice with Dave Delaney. Welcome to the Nice Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Delaney. I've created a special little page on the website for friends of this show, and if you enjoy it please visit it. It's called friend.nicepodcast.co or you can just click the link in the description here. Now you'll find some goodies on that page and links to help support the show. And I would really appreciate it if you drop by. Now today I'm chatting with Harry S. Campbell. He's a keynote speaker, author, and has been a president of two Fortune 500 companies. He's working with P&G. He managed brands like Crest and Pepto-Bismol and Metamucil. He's also been a president of a little company you might have heard of, Sprint. Harry's also the author of Get Real Leadership, Get Real Culture, and Get Real Mindset. All of these books are quick, entertaining reads that will leave you inspired with really excellent actionable advice. In uh, Get Real Leadership, which is something we'll be talking about today, he also shares a tip about discovering your own personal brand. It's not just a tip, it's a bit of an exercise, but it is well worth tuning in to. And there's a lot more in store. All right. Without further ado, let's bring on Harry. So this, the nice podcast, I don't know if you've had a, have you had a chance to listen to it at all? Don't, and you won't hurt my feelings if you say um, no. I listened to a couple of them. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I cool. have. No, I went, okay. I went and listened to a couple of them. Okay, nice. So yeah, I mean, it's really about, you know, communication, collaboration, and really becoming better leaders. Uh, you know, it is a, a, it's in a way, it's sort of like the book that I'm slowly, slowly working on. Um, <laughs> but like the book, it's, it's really about, you know, it's sort of a, a business book, dis- or, you know, disguise, or it's a, a self-help book in a way disguised as a business book, you know? Um, yeah. That's well said. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah. Well, I, I'm a, I'm a big believer that everybody is a leader. Uh, they just, you know, a lot of people don't realize that they are. And, and it may be just leading your family, your kids, or maybe leading some friends, or it may be leading a division in your office or, you know, or the company itself. Uh, for those people, I hope they know they're leaders. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, you, you, you know, something fascinating by that is um, in my keynote speech that I do on Get Real Leadership, um, one of the first slides I put up is my premise. That's literally the title of the slide. And and the reason I put it up there is I say, if someone's going to talk to you about leadership, they better give their definition of it because there's a million of them. And I say, my definition is influence and impact. And I go on to say, in my uh, uh, opinion, anybody can be a leader. I say, I don't care how big your budget is, how many people work for you, whether you're an individual contributor, whether you stole your job, got promoted to your job, or you're in your job, anybody can be a leader. And it's about influence and impact. That's all that matters. And some of the best leaders I've ever seen are individual contributors. And I love starting that way. And that's almost exactly what you just said. I love that too. Yeah. For me, the, the story I like to share is, uh, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, I, like I, I loved to skateboard and punk rock and all this stuff and, and hung out with like a group of friends. Like there was like five of us and we all hung out together when we were like, you know, young teenagers or whatever. And, um, and one of the kids in the group was sort of our kind of leader without anybody appointing him as a leader. He was just sort of the leader. He would, you know, he would, you know, suggest we go do stuff, whatever. And we would just follow along. So like 30 years later, and they're still like best friends of mine or 25 years later. Or so I was having a, a drink with a, one of those guys and, and we were just catching up and, you know, talking about old times and things. And he said, you know, well, yeah. And we all knew who the leader was. Right. And I said, yeah. And I named this guy and my buddy's like, no, man, you. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> it totally threw me off. He's like, you, you were the leader. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. What? And I never, ever had realized that. Um, and all these years, I don't know if the others felt the same way or not. And it's not really something I would ask, but the fact that I, I was an unknowing leader. And so that's part of the, the essence of the book and, and, this, and, and the talk about leadership too is, is really in the ROI of nice is, is understanding that everyone is a leader. Like whether, whether you're leading friends or family or whether you're leading, you know, uh, you know, a small division or, or whatever, or a small department, you, you know, people are leaders, whether they know it or not. So, yeah, yeah I would, I would add one to that. Um, and once again, in the structure of my keynote, I talk about the three levels, three areas of leadership. And the first one is leading yourself. The second one is leading the people or leading people around you. And the third one is leading your business. But the leading yourself one is another example of how everybody's a leader. You have to. Whether you're good or bad at it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it should matter. But it, at the end of the day, you're still leading yourself. You may not do it consciously. But that's that's the first example of what you're doing. And that has to do with your uh, reactions, your body language, your words, uh, your intentions and all that wrapped together is your leadership of yourself. And I contend that you can't be successful leading other people if you haven't figured out how to lead yourself. Yes, absolutely. That's that's I, we're kindred spirits here, I think, because. Um, yeah, the the ROI of nice, the, the the keynote that I do and also the the book I'm working on 
it's broken down into three sections and it's, you know, and I'm a sucker for alliteration. So it's, it's self stakeholders and society. So how to be nicer to yourself as a leader, how to be nicer to your team members, your stakeholders in the organization, your clients and prospects and so forth, but then also being nice to your, to your community and to the world at large, by by finding creative ways to, to give back and to contribute. So yeah, we're, all, we're totally on the same page there. I love it. And, 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 wow. and speaking of that, so um, I, and I, and I love, uh, your book, uh, get real leadership. It's awesome. Um, <laughs> it's really great. I, I really loved it a lot. Uh, uh, that, uh, it, it's very me and it's, uh, it's an easy read. So thank you. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I'm a slow reader and I always appreciate uh, an easy read. Like that's kind of how I write too. Like I want, I want to, uh, yeah, I just want to relay information and get people to, you know, what they need without adding too much fluff to it or, or fluff at all. And, you know, in fact, in your book, you wrote about, <laughs> you wrote about like, was it a slide that you were presenting to your team members and, and it was all just like marketing speak? Yes. <laughs> yes. And and it's, it's one of the slides I talk about and, and I, I put it up and it has all these jargon and leverage the synergy of the you know skill sets and all that and I'm like oh for gosh sakes get over yourself I did I've had boss many bosses that talk like that and it just makes me shake my head because it, people just don't care they don't yeah <laughs> yeah actually I liked I liked uh uh you know I, I'm I'm a big fan of the golden rule of like treating people the way you want to be treated. And and this is something that I, I teach my kids and, and, and say all the time, but you said something in the book, I actually made a note of it because it stood out to me and it was speak to people the way you want to be spoken to, which I loved as well. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the audio golden rule. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And getting back to your, your, like the, the way you are in personality and, and, and tapping into your, your strengths. Um, in your book, you talked about uh, the findings from a, a Herman Brain Dominance uh, Instrument personality assessment that you took early on. Right. And, and you wrote a quote, or, or I, I, I wrote this, or I stole this out of your book, but you said, uh, you can't bear to lose. This is kind of your personality. You can't bear to lose, but you can't bear to win alone. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah. You know, it. Uh, that kind of statement um, hit my uh, buttons and, and it struck me to the core because I realized that um, I'm extraordinarily competitive. I think I hate to lose more than I love to win. But when, when I win, um, winning individually, I've come to realize over time is cool. I celebrate and it's important, but it's uh, way less fulfilling to me than doing it uh, with somebody not just around somebody and having people watch, that's not the same thing, mm. but uh, where you're both contributing and it's happening. And, and um, I love that. And I, you know, the cross country that I did at Vanderbilt, um, I love that more than track track has some elements to teams because you score points and so does cross country because your place matters, but cross country with the strategy and the teamwork that happens and running in a pack and having people who are having good days and bad days and being able to um, translate that into victory as a team was extraordinary. And I realized it was, it was just fundamentally more fulfilling for me to do that. And that was one of the reasons why I love being in business and leading groups of people because um, we are in this and I've never, uh, uh, fallen into the trap of believing that I was more important than anybody. I might've been the final decision maker, but that does not mean you're more important. That means you're at a particular place that you have to do a 
play a particular role. And um, I love winning with teams and celebrating. It just makes me happy. Yeah. And you've worked, uh, you know, you've managed a lot of, you know, and, ha- and held a lot of senior positions with, you know, Procter and Gamble and, uh, and Sprint. And, and, and in fact, it's some of the brands you worked on, I, I, I just noticed this, I subscribed to uh, some several different emails that are uh, newsletters that have statistics, different studies. I thought I, I saw this and I thought you'd get a kick out of it. But apparently there's a study that if you have a pink drink, uh, pink drinks will help uh, uh, runners increase their speed. There's like a psychological connection to a pink color drink as opposed to a different color drink. And they end up running 4.4% faster and you ran Pepto-Bismol. So I think it was a missed opportunity there for, for runners. Um, I, I have no idea who would have come up with that. And that just makes me crazy to not know because I love it. I'm going to, I'm going to use it 4.4%. Just think I could have taken my time and done so much better. Darn. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the uh, PNG thing is fascinating because it's, a, yeah. it's an extraordinary company. It's a great place, particularly to, uh, for someone like me with teachers as, as parents to, to, to learn. And I didn't know a lot about business at all. And I went there and PNG shaped me. But mm-hmm. what's fascinating is I, I got there and I worked on Crest. And eventually I worked on Pepto-Bismol and Metamucil. And I'd like to tell people I was working down the body. I'm not <laughs> sure where I was going next, but um, I, I ended up leaving. So I didn't get a chance to figure the next next step out. <laughs> and you were uh, 23 when you started at P&G? Is that right? Um, I was. I, I uh, have an, a summer birthday and, um, back in the when I was born, you didn't consider holding people. So mm-hmm. I graduated um I'll call it six months younger than a lot of people. And I went straight from undergrad to grad school, undergrad at uh, Vanderbilt as a history and economics major. Mm. And then two years of uh, business school, getting an MBA at Indiana. And I was 23 in May of 1985, took a couple months off and showed up at P&G at 23. I turned 24 a couple months after I was there, but I was one of the younger people there. And I was, um, I was a blank slate and PNG loves that. They're mm. very um, process oriented. They're very um, particular with regard to thought processes and teaching and training and, and doing uh, a lot of things their own way. And I was a blank slate for them. So it was a, a great experience for me to absorb in massive amounts of uh, learning and for them to get somebody that was willing to listen and uh, nod their head a lot because I didn't know any better and it worked really well. I didn't fight their uh, processes and systems because I didn't know any better. How did you end up at like P&G in the first place? Like, did you just apply to a job or was it through networking or, or something else? Um, I, I, I love this. This is an example of something that I've uh, never even been asked about. Hey, you're listening to the nice podcast with Dave Delaney. That's me. Visit futureforth.com to learn how we can transform the communication at your organization. And if you need a speaker for your next online event or your in-person conference, are we doing in-person conferences yet? Uh, Soon, I hope. Uh, You can visit davedelaneyspeaks.com and uh, you'll learn more about working with me there. All right, let's get back to the show. Um, So... One of the reasons I went to business school was because um, if you get into a business school, you're going to be at a place where employers come 
and I showed up in um, Indiana's Kelly School of Business is a good one. They're top 20 or 25, probably. Mm. Um, and I had an internship. It was a two year program. I had an internship with General Electric. So that helped my resume. Uh, got me away from just a liberal arts guy mm. to an internship in a strategic planning group with General Electric, which was pretty prestigious. And that worked for me. Yeah. So then when it came to full time hiring, I thought I want to be in marketing. I looked at ad agencies and um, consumer packaged goods companies. So General Mills, Kraft, P&G, but also uh, Leo Burnett as an advertising agency. And um, I, I was intriguing to them. There are, there are open interview schedules and they're closed. Open means um, if you want to sign up, you can. If there's room, closed means the company picks the people they want to based on the resumes and recommendations. So that's uh, more prestigious. Mm. I tended to get on a lot of open schedules because I didn't have a great background, but I'm um, a good communicator. I'm gregarious. I'm also naive enough to think that um, why would you not want to hire me? Because I'm pretty smart and I'm willing to work really hard and I'm willing to learn your way. Mm. Um, When I interviewed with P&G, I immediately connected with the, the, um, person that was interviewing and was assigned to Indiana to, um, um, to recruit. Mm. And we, we hit it off so well, PNG after your first interview, literally immediately on the spot, if they like you enough, they send you in a separate room and they give you an intellectual test. It's kind of an IQ test. It's timed. <laughs> you virtually can't get done. I, I think you can't get done, but they, they really want to kind of, do a litmus test on your intelligence as quickly as possible. They have to have proof that 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 test correlates to success at the company or it's illegal. And they do have proof. Mm. And um, I I did really well on that thing. And so that enabled me to get an invite to Cincinnati and uh, sign me up for a list uh, for a day where I meet six different people or groups of people and talk about me or the company and what's going on. I, I get energy from that, Dave. So yeah. one, one of the advantages of being an extrovert and being a blank slate was there wasn't anything I felt I could do wrong. And so that was one of the glorious days of my life, that full day interview at PNG. And at the end of it, they gave me an offer, a full-time mm. offer. This was like in October with six, seven more months of school to go. And I was, I, I think I drove about 95 miles an hour from Cincinnati back to Bloomington because I was so excited. It was just stupid. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was virtually certain I was going to take the job, but I also knew that I didn't really have to care about school for the next seven months, which really, really sits well with me. <laughs> that's cool. That's good. That's great. So this started really like with uh, an internship, I guess, with GE that that you were able to I mean, you know, that's obviously a reputable brand we're all familiar with and, and, uh, and a good place to, to start to kind of get your, get your feet wet for sure. So, yes, yes. And, you know, I talk about those interviews, whether it was on campus in Indiana or whether it was in person at P&G and I went to five or six other companies. I, I stopped interviewing after I think five or six and I got um, plenty of job offers. I knew I wanted to go to P&G, but mm. those Interviews were fascinating because, um, to your point about the ROI of NICE, um, my role in my family growing up is I was the pleaser, and um, I'm an extrovert, and so you kind of mix all that together into this really kind of uh, cool cocktail that I have as a person, Mm. and um, given that I really had no arrogance about me whatsoever because I knew nothing about uh, these companies and business, 
I was just enjoying myself and I am very good at, ha- at engaging with people and having them like me and tr- trying to like them. And that's kind of my superpower. And I didn't realize how important that was in the interviewing process for someone that had such a light resume. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually what got me the, I got plenty of job offers. I think I went on six with six companies. I ended up following up with and ended up getting five job offers and one rejection. Mm. And um, I think it was this interesting mix of my personality and, and my, my niceness because of my role in my family. You don't choose that role. It's what, it's the one that I had and I, it worked to my advantage. Yeah. And in the book, you talked about how you, yeah, I mean, family is a priority for you. And at the time when your kids were little, you would, we, you would be sure to go and, and join them for lunch uh, from time to time as well. Um, which I thought, I thought was cool. I used to do the same. And in fact, um, I actually once got reprimanded doing that, um, oh, where wow. I, <laughs> yeah, my, the, uh, my kid's teacher actually called my wife and said, Dave can't come back for lunch if he's going to do magic tricks on the kids. Cause I like magic and I would do like these little <laughs> mad, I would do like a little sleight of hand thing at the, at the lunch table on, on all the little chairs. I'm sitting with my kids and the other kids in the class. And I would do like a couple like sleight of hand tricks and they would lose their minds. And then all the other kids would gather to see, and then suddenly everything has stopped. Nobody's eating lunch. You know, they're on the clock. I'm just disrupting lunch. And so, yeah, I got reprimanded uh, I got nice. for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But tell me about that. So, so where, like, how did, um, to some people, they'd be like, well, duh, I mean, you have kids. So obviously naturally you're, you're a family man, but I mean, I think a lot of people are not, well, some people maybe don't put family as a priority. How, how did you decide, or, I mean, it it probably wasn't a conscious decision. I expect it's probably part of your personality, I, I assume, but, but tell me a little bit about that, like prioritizing family. Um, yeah, it, it, it's rooted back in my, um, first 18 years of my life, uh, my, my father was an alcoholic and the role that I had, uh, being the pleaser was very important and not, not chosen, but given to me. And so it shapes how you operate, how you can read people, um, and, and how you deal with confrontation and conflict and, and all those things get meshed together. And, um, then I ended up uh, obviously getting married and I had a couple of kids and I realized the most important thing from my standpoint was not my business career. And that was critically important because I loved it. There's challenges and there's successes and there's just basic taking care of your family. Mm. But, and that was important, but being a role model as a dad and trying to do the best you can became so important to me. And then I ended up um, getting divorced when I had two little kids. So, uh, uh, my older two kids were, I think six and four when I got divorced and I, I became a single parent and I had a pretty big, uh, executive jobs. Mm. And, um, I like to blurt things out to hold myself accountable, Dave. This is kind of an interesting thing to do because if you right. say something out loud, uh, then you've got accountability partners with you. And I told my kids when they were little and I got divorced that I would never live more than two miles from them. Mm-hmm. And I would, uh, I was not divorcing them. Um, I was, uh, uh going to continue to be their dad. And so what I, I was a single parent for a couple of years and, um, I had huge jobs and, half the time at five o'clock or quarter to five, I had to leave 
Mm -hmm. And I worked at Sprint. And I think at one point I was the president Mm -hmm. of one of the large divisions and the CEO would be sitting there and I'd say, you know what, I got to go. And my peers were a bit horrified because how could you do that? Or you, you, that's pretty nervy to get up and leave a meeting. And what, what I thought about it was that um, not really uh, it, it's what I'm doing and it, it's part of me. Uh, I told my kids that uh, they're a priority and in the, I think I had a couple years with several times a week I had to leave. Um, I was late more than five minutes one time. And I remember the, my, my kids said, we forgive you because you're never late. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I thought how cool that was. Yeah. And by the way, the CEO had a statement. He, he, in, in the middle, in front of all me and my, all my peers once, um, I love this guy and what he said. He said, we need to have a, a, a half day strategic planning session. I'd rather do it on a weekend because um, we've got so much going on during the week. And he turned to his assistant and said, could you check Harry's schedule with his kids to make sure that we put it on a Saturday that um, he's, uh, he doesn't have to worry about that. And I thought, you know what? that that um he wasn't bsing that was exactly the way he felt and he didn't think anything of it because he knew where my priorities were and that mattered to me with him Mm. that's great that's it's important to have like good mentors good leaders like that who actually identify and understand because i i actually excuse me i i was working for a, a company in toronto where i'm from originally and uh, all the team, well, not well, all this management, my two main managers there were both younger than me and they did not have kids. And I just, I think we just had the first, uh, our first one, Sam. So he was just a baby. And, uh, and Heather was just, you know, by the time I got home at the end of work every day, Heather was just exhausted and just like handed him off to me so she could go pass out somewhere. And, um, and so at the end of the day, every day I would, I would leave like right at five o'clock or whatever time I would, I would leave as long as there's no fires to put out. I mean, I wouldn't just abandon everybody like, but I would, I would get up and leave. I mean, I was being, you know, I was there until five every day. That was the work day. And because the other, my colleagues were, were much younger, they would still be working and they would work late sometimes. And so when it came to my review, my two management, the two managers sat me down and said, you know, we love you. You're doing a great job, blah, blah, blah. Everything was, was glowing colors. But then they said, but um, the, our only negative feedback we're getting is that you, you leave, you know, you leave, you know, early. And, and I said, oh, I never leave early. I leave on time. <laughs> and I explained, I explained. Answer. Yeah. And they were still like, I mean, they were cool about it, but they were just saying, you know, it would be better if you just, you know, stayed later, like everybody else kind of thing. And I said, like, I would never leave if there was a problem or something that needed tending to, but if the workday is over, I've got to get home to my, to my, uh, to my wife and my kiddo. And, uh, and what was funny is fast forward all these years, both, uh, I've, you know, we, I, I keep connected to people, so I'm still connected to these people and they both have had kids since then. And I remember when each of them had their first kid, I messaged them and said, so remember that time <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and had a good laugh from that. So, so yeah, it's, it's funny how it all, it all comes around. I did have a question about some of your travels cause you spent some time in Osaka. Is that correct? In Japan? Um, actually, no, I was offered a job there. Ah, okay. A promotion and a job. Okay. Um, I turned it down. Uh, my wife 
was working at the time. We didn't have kids. And mm-hmm. I was told if you go to Osaka with PNG, your wife will not work. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked him whether they had ESPN in Osaka. <laughs> I'm, I'm a freakish sports fan. And they thought they thought I was kidding. And I really wasn't. I was like, well, wait a minute. I turned it down. Um, within a few months, I was offered a job in Northwest Arkansas on the uh, newly founded Walmart Procter Gamble customer team. And I said, yes. So I became known as the person that turned down Osaka for Bentonville. Uh, I thought I, that was a, that was a badge of honor to me, but a lot of people thought I was stupid. Um, the joke was on them. It worked out real well. Yeah. I think Walmart is probably worth more than Japan at this point. <laughs> so uh, with all due respect to my Japanese listeners, but I ended up being around Sam Walton for a year and a half or so until his uh, cancer came back or leukemia. Mm. And um, what I learned from him just kind of on the periphery of being around him and listening to him and being in meetings with him was uh, invaluable and was something that never would have uh, been possible in uh, any other scenario. So I made the right choice. I didn't know it at the time, but it worked Mm. out great. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he seemed like a real, uh, like a genuine, a real leader, like, like you talk about, right. Like, uh, like he seemed, he seemed yeah. quite genuine. Um, I mean, I, lo- I love, you mentioned in the book about sitting next to his wife in coach, you know, on a, on a flight or in economy or whatever. And she was very friendly to you. And, and, uh, so they, they seem like really, you know, genuine, good, you know, good people. Yeah. I, you know, the names of uh, my books have start with get real because mm-hmm. I've been accused. I say that in a sarcastic, humorous way, accused of being um, way too real and way too authentic. Um, and I mean that in a good way. And that's what the way uh, Mr. Sam was. Um, he uh, loved to talk about uh, leadership in terms of servant leadership. Um, that's a term that I rarely use in my speeches because I believe it's been beat to death and overused too much. But at the end of the day, the principles of servant leadership are exactly what I espouse to. And, and I heard them from Sam Walton and the way the simplest thing is there's a lot to it. And I can shorten it by saying he, he said, it's an inverted pyramid. Your job as a leader is to make sure that you take care of the people that work for you. Um, you make their job easier. And if that happens, they'll take care of clients and we will win. And he said, if you get this, if you get the pyramid wrong and, and assume that everybody below you is serving you, um, you won't work here. Mm. Did he ever, because I, I don't know enough really about, about Sam Walton as a person, but I mean, and, and as you said, I mean, you know, he was a pretty genuine guy, but at the same time, you know, Walmart also, had some bad PR from, from, you know, kind of gobbling up little town centers and things like that. Did, did, was that something that was maybe he was aware of or worried about or anything like that? Or did you ever talk about anything like that? Or Um, I did not. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was clearly um, in the press where you have a Walmart uh, land on the outskirts of a small little town and service the three three rural counties around it in mm-hmm. the mom and pop stores. Um, and I, I never heard him address that. But at the end of the day, um, those businesses and their model that they had, this has nothing to do with Sam Walton. This is Harry Campbell. Mm-hmm. Um, they were in trouble anyway. They were the ones that took, they were the ones that took the business away from the Sears Roebuck catalog. Mm-hmm. And then the next, uh, 
version of that is somebody that, that has buying power and brings cheap, extraordinarily less cost and prices to the people in the area. So I, I, uh, I have no idea what his opinion on that was, but it was definitely something in the press that uh, Walmart had to deal with regularly. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, and, and not about Walmart specifically or anything like that, but I mean, you know, when it comes down to, to the quality of, of service, you know, like you'll go, like I'll go to a restaurant that costs more than another restaurant. But I know that that restaurant, I'm not talking about fine dining necessarily, but just like a, a, you know, a restaurant that's a little more expensive than another restaurant because like the customer service, the owners are always there saying hello, like it's a super family friendly place and, and things like that. So, so in a way, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I guess, you know, so many companies and industries have failed in such a big way because they didn't, you know, the old term adapt or die, right. Where like they had to adapt to the times and you look at, you know, I live in Nashville. So, you know, the publishing industry, the music industry and all these industries that were really slow to, to jump on uh, the web, whether they liked it or not. I mean, it was, that train was coming and the train is here now. Um, So for companies that didn't, you know, uh, adapt well. It's funny now because I kind of, in a weird way, and, and again, with all due respect to Walmart, I almost feel like <laughs> I was talking to a friend about this the other day. And I said, you know, I really do want to like not buy everything on Amazon. So I'm going to go and support, <laughs> you know, some local businesses like the poor Walmart down the road. Like I need to go down there and give them some money too. Like, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, interesting time for, uh, for that those kind of uh, industries for sure. What are some commonalities that you've learned in, in leadership uh, traits or trends or, you know, like where, where you, you, you've seen very effective leaders, like what are some commonalities they, they have across the brands that you've worked with or, or beyond? I'll, I'll give you my straightforward um, uh, three bullet points on this one that um, first of all, I have a personal statement that I make, um, for groups that I run, particularly as I got bigger and bigger groups, my goal was to create a culture or environment that people desperately want to work in. Mm. And I use that word desperately. And it's important because it's, it's a dramatic word. It, it kind of make, get, makes you do a double take, but I mean that. And the reason why I do that is because that helps me win. <laughs> <laughs> It does. Yeah. Um, because then when you have a job opening, the line to get in wraps around the building and you can choose the best person and you can choose a person who's an A plus player and who's nice. Yeah. In the book, I talk about that. I want a combo. I can find A plus players. It's hard, but you can find them and you can find more than one. And I want to find the ones that are nice because I'm going to spend 11 hours a day with somebody. Mm-hmm. I don't want them. I don't need them to be an ass. Right. So I do that. Um, what I say is very simply <clears throat> the three things that um, I emphasize. One is for the people in your group, treat them like adults. Mm-hmm. And that has all sorts of stories and and anecdotes and rules behind it. But at the end of the day, treat them like adults. And if you don't know what that looks like, just to ask people to treat you like an adult and see what that means. And it's positive. Treat them like adults, give them the tools to do their job. This is a a little bit of a surprise to some people that I talk about this. This is not skills. Skills has to do with hiring and managing and developing. This is tools. And And I'll joke about it. If you ask somebody to be an inside salesperson and don't give them a good phone or a good computer, then you you've set them up for failure and that's not good. Mm hmm. 
So give them the tools. And third is help them feel somehow connected to the larger, bigger good, something bigger than themselves. They're not just doing a task. Yeah. They're, they're, they're doing something. If you want to go all the way to the end of that, you could say Simon Sinek's TED Talk on the why. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that grandiose. But at the end of the day, if you feel like you're doing something bigger than yourself, that matters. And so you're creating a culture and, and an environment that people desperately want to work in. Because, Dave, my, my theory in life is if you do those three things, 98% of the people will do a solid to a great job. And by the way, solid's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Not everybody can be an overachiever. Look at the bell curve. Yeah. And and 2% are cheaters and liars because welcome to the human race. Right. <laughs> but if, 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 if I believe it's 98. And because I believe it's 98 and I put these things into play, I'm very optimistic and confident it happens. And that kind of feeds to it. And then it works. And then people want to be there because people do not want to be bored at work. They don't want to be considered lazy. They don't want to be considered liars. They don't want any of that stuff. But if you put them in a situation where they quine a lot or or they can kind of cheat on their whatever, their hours, and you put them in bad situations, then they, they will do it. But they still don't think of themselves as bad people. So give them the environment that enables them to have those three things I talked about. And what happens is a lot of the complaining and whining goes away and they actually do a better job and they attack the competition better and they learn and they work on their skill sets. And it is this spiral upward that is beautiful. And I've seen it happen probably five, six different times when I joined large orgs. It's not that hard. Mm. And those are great. That's, uh, yeah, I think the worst job, probably the second worst job that I ever had <laughs> failed at all three of those just spectacularly like like giving you this job let me let me explain what this was this was a summer job it was it was really terrible it was selling large quantities of meat cold calling people Ooh. <laughs> and they gave me literally a phone book a white pages with a ruler and a lot and a pen oh. and, a, and a legal pad to go use the ruler and then a phone like just a regular old phone and i started calling people and realized oh my god this is like the the worst this is the worst situation ever and actually on my on my uh this is back in my stupid dave smoking days but on on a smoke break i went out uh lit a cigarette and realized this is the worst job I've ever ha- ever had and actually left. I didn't even come back after the smoke break. This is the first day <laughs> they actually called. They were really sweet. The people that ran the place, they were calling me like, are you okay? <laughs> and uh, yeah, but just, yeah, that's, yeah. What was the worst job you've ever had? I'm curious. Um, that's a easy answer. Without and naming names. It's, it's <laughs> a little bit mundane, but I was a, uh, in Nashville, uh, mm. uh, in one of my summers, I, I went to Vanderbilt and I stayed for the summer in Nashville and I was a server at a Mexican restaurant. Mm. And um, that isn't necessarily bad by itself, but the uh, supervisor slash boss was an, an autocratic, um, not nice person. Mm. Um, and I, I uh, had to memorize the prices and the, the menu and I got, whacked around by the boss. And mm. I, I realized that uh, large groups that give zero tip uh, are uh, the devil themselves. 
And <laughs> so true. Um, I was I went whenever I had to close. I was there, you know, an hour after the restaurant closes, and you're getting all the chips out and making sure that the salsa is ready for tomorrow. And it, it was that job that made me realize that um, going to college and trying to figure out what I want to do separate from this was really, really a priority. And um, that I think that was that that three month, two three months, whatever it was was um, extraordinarily shaping. And I rarely ever talk about it, but sometimes you got to figure out what you don't want to do before you figure out what you do. Mm, yeah. Yeah. My wife and I both were recovering. We we consider ourselves recovering servers because we've worked <laughs> at, a, at, at several restaurants and bars and things over the years when we were younger. And uh, yeah, you know, I learned so much working as a server um, at a restaurant and at, at bars and things. Um, and like the the power this is something i wrote about a, a long time ago but the power of a free slice of pie where if something <laughs> screws up in the kitchen the food comes out wrong or it's you know old or whatever for whatever reason that's kind of out of my control as a server i would just comp the the person the victim <laughs> i would comp them a free slice of pie after or a cake or whatever as uh, for dessert and just that free slice of pie that would cost the house like 25 cents or whatever would like, they would leave elated. They would be so happy. And of course I would make sure to get them this pie before they wrote the tip. Uh, <laughs> um, and they would, they would end up like leaving on a high, super happy with everything. So it's um, amazing what you can do with that. Yeah. Uh, tell you uh, something that's kind of a uh, adjacent to that. Yeah. Um, the uh, we found at uh, Embark, so we were a local telephone company mm-hmm. in about five percent of the United States, and um, so we had people with their home phone line. This was you know fifteen years ago, and they bought home phone services from us, and some some of them bought high speed internet. We called it DSL, etc. Mm-hmm. And um, churn was important because people move, and if they move and they move out of your territory, they're no longer a customer. But also sometimes people were cutting the cord and going to wireless only. Mm-hmm. And there were reasons why people left. And, and I wanted to understand churn. So I had a, a study done on um, a longitudinal study over the last two years of people that had left. And um, we found something fascinating that I, that, that I love to tell. Um, of the people that we screwed up with, not had nothing to do with moving. We we messed them up. It usually was a billing error on our fault, on our part. And they had to call us and we resolved their issue. Every one of those, the, the average person in that group stayed longer after that problem and spent more money. Mm-hmm. And what we did some interviewing and we figured out that if we've been perfect with you, you don't know how we handle problems. Yeah. If we've if we've messed up and handled it well you know how we handle it. You're, you're genuinely happy about it. And so therefore you're not worried about the, what's going to happen if it happens again. It was an, mm-hmm. it was an interesting dynamic mentally that said, and, and what I joked about it with my team, I said, we should screw up a bill with everybody and fix it all. And then they'll all stay. Right. <laughs> but just, just think about that. You, what you did was these people, you, you solved the problem. You made them happy. Mm-hmm. they're still talking about it probably, you know, the next day. And they might even come back as a result of that, where the other people that don't know what, what happens if something is screwed up other than everybody gets irritated. Yes. Yeah. I talk a lot about like the, the power of reviews for, for businesses, especially for smaller businesses. But when, <laughs> when somebody leaves you a review, 
um, on your website or on, you know, uh, a review site or something. But if somebody leaves you a review, the most important thing to do is respond, first of all, whether it's good or bad. And if it's good, say, you know, hey, thanks so much for the review. And if it's bad, then then to in the review section, say, hey, you know, here's my direct phone number or here's my email address. Please contact me. I'd like to learn more about, you know, what, what happened. And then you can take the conversation offline and then make that make the experience good by comping them something or, or whatever, whatever you, whatever that outcome is, but you can convert someone who had a terrible experience and give them a really positive outcome. And then they're loyal for life for that reason, exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's beautiful. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about something in the book that I thought was a really cool idea. Um, I've done a variation of, of this before for myself, but I really liked your approach and it is, um, I, I can't remember if you have a name for it, but it's the, the seven words anonymous survey, uh, that you send to people who know you to get some adjectives to better define your personal brand. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And I do define it as your personal brand. Um, so when I got to, PNG, one of the first things you notice is um, the, the word brand is all over the place. It, it's hugely important to the company because they never sell PNG anything. Right. They sell, they sell Crest and Tide and Secret and they sell brands that endure and that have words that describe them. And the words that describe them are the ones that they've tried to message and communicate so that they come back to you. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, if you run Tide or you work on Tide. And I realized I have a personal brand. I didn't exactly know what it was and I didn't really know how to approach it. But I said, that's important because um, the most important thing to me actually is to try to figure out what words that I would like or believe I have um, as my personal brand and then find out what they actually are and see if there's a gap between those. And so I I really set out to do that. And I started by saying um, your personal brand, and I was telling myself this, is the four words that people use to describe you. I quickly turned that to seven because I will tell you four is too easy, Dave. And and words number six and seven are pretty tough. You you get into you 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 usually get into things that are more negative when you make somebody give a longer list and they 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 get the first five. You're mm-hmm. smart. You're good looking. You're you're uh, optimistic. Whatever, but then six and seven might get into uh, you're gullible or um, you're you're rude or right. something like that. And 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 I love that because to me. Um, being something different than you think you are is critically important. And I really believe this might shape my future with regard to how people saw me, whether they promoted me, whether they trusted me, whether they gave me assignments or not, or turned away from me. And I think people underestimate that. And so I think the personal brand is huge. So I set this up. It's on my website. As you said, it's a free little app. It's seven words about me. You click on that, register for the website. The reason you do that is because I believe you need to find these words out that people use anonymously. So Mm. they're free and clear to give feedback without worrying about retribution or making you mad. Um, And so you click on that and you choose. You you, you probably want seven or eight people to answer. So you end up with either 49 or 56 words. So you, you send it to maybe 10 or 12 people with at their email addresses and they answer and it goes back to the website and then you go and look at it and there's um all these words that people used to describe you um Mm. the first thing you need to do is some synonym work if somebody says you're honest and somebody else says you have integrity that's basically the same thing right 
but it, there's no right or wrong way to do it. But you've got a list of words that people use to describe you based on the totality of your interactions with them. It isn't just what you want yourself to be. It is what you are based on your language, your body language, um, your words and, and your reactions. And I love that. And um, I, I contend that when I talk about leadership, I've said this at the beginning of our discussion here, how can you lead other people if you don't um, lead yourself effectively? And one of the best ways to lead yourself effectively is to understand what your brand is. You may think you're a strategic leader and your organization thinks you're a micromanaging ninny. Mm. And, and, if, and if that's true, how bad is that? You would mm. you you have to want to know that. I don't care if it hurts you or not. If you're if you're rude and you you think you're hilarious, but you really come across as rude, um, or um, some other term that's not good, <laughs> you would want to know that because it has to do with the jokes you tell or uh, the the volume that of your laughs, which seem fake or whatever it is. I don't know what it is, mm. um, and. I contend that because the world is about people, and you would say this, the ROI of nice, Mm -hmm. people hire people, people fire people, people follow people, people leave companies because of people. And with regard to that, the seven words matters because the people around you, especially the ones above you making decisions on your career, they you might want to know what they think of you and whether you want to change it or whether you're okay with it. Yeah, and I like... In the book, actually, how you mentioned that one of your like uh, a, a former staff member or you know a team member was not doing well in her position, and and uh, uh, the, the details are a little foggy, but the long and the short of it was that rather than let her go, um, you put her back in the department that she was originally in where she excelled, and they welcomed her back with open arms. So like tapping into these, you know. So I think I think. I love the idea of the seven words as a way to to learn about your personal brand and your per, and your own strengths and find those commonalities. But I liked the reason why I brought that up is I liked your your spin on spin on it, but a different approach to it, which was for because uh, oftentimes we hire people from recommendations from our team members, and so before hiring somebody, you would ask the people that were recommending that person what their seven words were. Um, yeah, I love that. And I do that regularly. Um, one, one of my goals, um, at, especially when you're at a big company where, where a lot of your hiring or your candidates to fill a spot are going to come from internal. I mean, Sprint had 50,000 people in it. Mm. Um, I could always go outside and I did occasionally, but hiring inside. And if I'm going to hire inside, I'm going to get a resume from you and you're going to have references and I'm going to have HR or somebody check it. And that's all fine and good, but I'm guessing the references are going to be pretty strong. (laughs) Yeah. You shouldn't put them on there if they're not, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the ends of the earth to find three people if possible more if if uh if uh, it works so that i can literally ask those people they're not on the reference list but they know you they may have worked next to you but they were in a different group so they see and know how you um interact with people but they're not the one that's been um directly in the line of fire and ask them the seven words <clears throat> yeah. it's, it's very telling what you get i will i will say you rarely get extraordinarily negative words, Mm. but the nuances of some of the words you get are fascinating because they tend to to point you in a direction of where someone's um, more arrogant or confident than they should be Mm. um, or uh, something else that 
that you can really kind of look at and go, huh, I'm surprised that uh, these words came up and not these words. It's a great, it's a great approach. It's a great idea. I, I, I really do love it. In the book you wrote, if you expect the best from employees and praise them when they're giving what you expect, you'll get more of it. What are some tips on praising uh, your, your employees or, or even the, just the people in your life? Like, do, are there some, some strategies or tactics that you would use to praise those folks? Uh, yes. And I don't think they're going to surprise you, but I think it's important to remind. So um, thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, first of all is timeliness and specificity and realness is the answer. Okay. Mm. Um, timeliness, they're, they're just like anything else in life. If you catch somebody doing something cool or good, tell them right then. It's the most powerful moment to reinforce the behavior, and I love it. And I'll be at a call center walking around, or I'll double jack with somebody, which means that I'm able to plug in and listen to you who sits beside me, and you're taking care of a customer's problem, and all I'm doing is listening. They get done with a call. If if they've done something that's kind of cool, at that point, I can tell that the timeliness matters. I can say, wow, I loved how you handled this, this, and this, Mm. which feeds right into specificity also. It isn't just uh, how was your speech? It was great. Um, how how was your speech or um, uh, how did you handle that problem? Well, um, my speech went well, and I could tell the um, by the reactions to these three points. Um, they laughed at my jokes. Um, people were leaning forward. Nobody left the room. They weren't on their phones. Whatever the, whatever the answer is, the specificity, you can tell somebody, I thought you did well because... So you got mm-hmm. timeliness and specificity, and the other one is realness. And this is life. Don't BS. Yeah. You, you, I, if if you can't dance, don't try to dance. If if you if you sound wooden and inauthentic, uh, giving feedback, and some people just can't get it any better than that, then here's what I would suggest: go back, send an email. Mm. Because if your body language is going to distract from what you really truly mean is good feedback, but you're not great at it or you're a little embarrassed and you try to hem and haw and you try to you end up softening the feedback when you really meant it to be powerfully positive go mm. back and do an email but the key is most importantly is timeliness and specificity but the realness is still uh, important you mentioned body language a few times <laughs> uh since we've been chatting um, I have a friend of mine, uh, Scott Rouse, who's an author, and he is a, a body language expert and not like some self-proclaimed you know, guru or something. He's the guy that like the FBI call to help interrogate somebody like he's legit. Oh. he's totally legit. And he's also one of the worst guys. Like, I, I love Scott, but he's like uh, one of the worst guys to have a conversation with in person because like I'm always like crossing my arms and then I'm like moving my hand and then I'm. <laughs> Are, are my feet pointing towards him? Or are they not? Like, I'm totally conscious of like how I'm standing as I'm listening to him, uh, which is just hilarious. He always laughs when I tell him that. Um, do you have some some tips for for body language or or, have, or maybe some things that you've learned in how to how to use body language to better communicate? Wow. You know what? One of the reasons why I love doing things like this is because I have no idea what I'm going to be asked. I've never been asked uh, several of the things you've uh, <laughs> talked about today, which gives me a unfiltered off the top of my mind um, opportunity. And this is an example of one. The yeah. first thing I would say is um, um, relax. I think anytime your, your um, shoulders are tight 
or you you look um, intense, it's hard at that point to be to be um, genuinely positive if you look more intense. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it because intensity could mean you're so excited for somebody and you're giving them positive feedback. But um, I, I learned this from running. One of the early mistakes I made is I, I was so fired up. I would get very tense. My upper arms, my shoulders were hunched up toward my head. And it's hard to get free-flowing that way in running. And it's also hard uh, in discussions. Mm-hmm. Obviously, eye contact matters. Yeah, I'm going to go beyond that one because I think that one's a, that one's too simple and, and very real. Um, the, the other one is... Um, uh, I would, I'm trying to figure this out. The, the close versus open. I think of it as like blinds. Um, my whole goal is to get somebody's blinds open. So they're, so I can make sure that I'm communicating with them and I'm also listening to them. And it could be your arms crossed. It could be you turned sideways. It could be your, your wander. You, you keep looking at a spot like eight inches above their head. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, it's all these things that have to do with close because um, once again, I'll go back to the point. People, um, are oftentimes are uncomfortable receiving feedback. And if, and if that signals to you and, and makes you less comfortable or you're in a discussion with somebody and that happens, um, that's not productive. So the openness factor, which can be everything from your jaw being set to your shoulders being um, tight and up, I think is read by people. And if body language is read and it could be read wrong or misinterpreted at that point. I think you you're not uh, they're not listening to you anyway. The the words don't matter much at that point. Mm, yeah, that's good. And, and yeah, Scott makes that point in his book as well about about um, understanding that you've got to take a combination of different things and like uh, you know take these different cues like you're talking about and and then consider how they all apply and fit together. Cause I mean, yeah, when somebody's arms are crossed, it could mean that they're standoffish, but it could also mean that they're cold. So, but if they're like their arms are crossed and they're not looking at you. Okay. Well that you, you add those together to kind of come up with a, an idea. So I love that. All right. Let's move to the lightning round very quickly before we wrap up, complete this sentence. Nice guys and gals finish. First. What's a nice book you recommend to the nice makers listening? Um, I think saying get real leadership is probably not fair, right? <laughs> <laughs> I loved your book. I, yeah, why not? I, I, I think it's fair. And also, I do want to point out that all proceeds from your book and your speaking engagements uh, uh, also helps to to support uh, Head for the Cure. And I know you've raised, last I checked, was 470000 Is that yeah. right? Um, yes, it's uh, closer to 485 now. I give 100% of my gross speaking fees and 100% of my book proceeds to um, brain cancer research and charity. Which is awesome. And and you have a foundation called Head for the Cure. Um, I'm actually on the board. It's not my oh, foundation, but it's, it is it is where we funnel the money because they spend it extraordinarily well. And um, it's uh, something that our family has been wrestling with. My My wife is a brain tumor survivor at this point. So um, we would love to find a cure. And she's an amazing leader too, by the way. There's a lot of mentions of her in the book and examples of, of how she's handled some different situations. Uh, so uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And how is Harry? Uh, nice my, to, by the way, my, oh. my, my, 
one real uh, the book thing. Yeah, I, my favorite book that I've ever read in in the business world is 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 old school. It's Jim Collins, Good to Great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually go back and read that or parts of that a couple times a year, and sometimes oldies or goodies because um, the the lessons in there I repeat, and I love to um, uh, refresh my memory on that. Yeah, Jim Collins has a a thing. Uh, that I, I just read about or heard about somewhere about uh, like a creating like a fictitious uh, a fictitious boardroom and choosing seven people to sit at the boardroom table um, and and choosing like different leaders so different different thought leaders different people you admire placing them you know without no without telling them um, or or perhaps they're dead I don't know maybe they're not around anymore but putting them on that boardroom table and then kind of printing it out and and pinning it above your desks so that as you're working throughout a day you can look up and say okay would you know Sam Walton call BS on this or would you know and and so you have this sort of this idea of writing like seven different uh, different mentors uh, do you do you recall this at all I don't know um I do, and I love that. I've never done it, so that uh, that's an admission that I am sheepish about. But I think it's very cool. Uh, in in every one of my speeches, I have a slide that I repeat, and it's called mentors and influencers. So it's the people that have helped shape me or helped me, um, and um, all it is is names, mm. and I add to it. Occasionally subtract from it, not uh, rarely do yeah. it, but it is literally chock full of names, starting with my wife, but also my college cross country coach, my pastor, and a third of them I've never met, like Serena Williams. I'm amazed at her as a tennis player, as a person, yeah. as a mother. And so I love that page because it makes me think about who I am and how I operate, which is exactly what you were just talking about. That's great. And how is Harry nice to himself? Um, I, it took me a long time to learn this, but um, I love to read fiction. And the reason I do is because I don't try to memorize it and therefore learn from it. I mm. just escape from it. Yep. So um, I read uh, James Patterson and Stuart Woods. Um, it, it's the reading equivalent of Dexter, if you know, uh, you know, the serial killer <laughs> that we all learn to love from Showtime. Yeah. And, and I take care of myself by doing that. And I rarely read biographies because I want to memorize and I have a photographic memory and I want to get done and then call Dave and say, Dave, you would not believe what Harry Truman did in 1945 and blah, blah, right. blah. And he only got 186 electoral votes. And, I'm, and my friends are like, okay, dude, whatever. <laughs> Trivia night is next Wednesday. Yeah. And, and, and I really love to learn. And so I have to turn it off. And so I've learned to turn it off is to uh, read uh, kind of suspenseful fiction that uh, escapes, but doesn't scare me. How about that? Yeah, that's great. So you you do you have a photographic memory? Is that what you just said? I do. I do. You're the second guest on my podcast that has a photographic memory. That's interesting. Um, you know, what's fascinating about it is I, I rarely talk about it because I don't really think about it. And I, I think I was in college before I realized everybody didn't. Hmm. And and I was an extraordinarily good student without learning much. <laughs> How about that for a line? <laughs> Because I, I, I never missed, I, I did not miss a class in college, didn't skip. I didn't care whether it was 8 a.m. and I was hungover. I was going because I took colored pencils and, and, and I wrote down everything the teacher said, notes, and I circled things and starred things and then 
three days before the test, I would read the notes. Two days before the test, read the notes. One day before the test, read the notes. Go take the test. Go through my notes with the question. Because teachers barely rarely ask a question that they didn't cover in class. Mm. And I would fill it in from my memory and I'd walk out and go, well, that wasn't hard. That's interesting. Are, are there other, so well, I took judo as a kid, not that it's really relevant, but um, when I was, <laughs> when I was much younger and I was a teenager and there was a guy uh, in our class and my brother took it too. And he knew he asked, he had a photographic memory and he could remember birthdays, like dates and, and years. And sure enough, we ran into this guy like 30 years later and he's like, Mike and Dave Delaney, April 16th, <laughs> June 30th. And, and I was just like, Oh my God. Like I, like we hadn't seen this guy in a million years. So uh, it's an interesting thing with a photographic memory because yeah, are there ways to like, in the example you're giving, you know, that's a really good use of a photographic memory is to ace, you know, <laughs> exams and things like that, where, you know, this other fella, I, I'm not sure how, how that helped him, but <laughs> a great party trick, I guess. Um, but are, were there, are there ways that you can train your uh, photographic memory to remember specific things like that? I mean, I, obviously there is, but like, I don't know if this is the same for everyone with a photographic memory or whether it's different. And, and, um, I, I've never bothered to try to figure that out. Um, mm. But what I do is I, I have to figure out context. I, I have eight or 10. No, that's too many. Six or eight coffees and lunches a week because I'm retired mm -hmm. and I speak and I invest and I mentor, but I've got time. And Somebody that I had coffee with four years ago, um, I won't necessarily, I remember their face. I don't necessarily remember their name because it, unless they had a name tag on, by the way, I love name tags. Mm. Um, and, but what I'll do is say, where did we meet? And, and I, I, I go to a bunch of different coffee shops and I'll, and then all of a sudden I'll remember, okay, we were sitting outside and I had my back to this place and I'll remember the conversation, but I need, I need some triggers to do that. Mm. And, um, that works. So I, I, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm an 80% um, photographic memory. I, I don't, I don't know what the number is, but um, mm -hmm. I, I use it to have some context around people that I've met, but I don't, I, I'll forget your name. If you give it to me audibly uh, in three seconds, all of a sudden I'm like, what the hell was that guy's name? Right. <laughs> right. Right. And, and um, by the way, with Sam Walton, um, one of the things that he did was he talked to me about MBWA and I'd never heard of it before management by walking around. And I, I, I've followed him around a couple of times. And one of the things he did was he looked at name tags and cubes because as he said, there's nothing more personal than your name. And he would try to remember your name to be able to say hi. And I did that later on in my career. Um, the, I'd have a couple or 300 people at headquarters and a lot of people are in the field, but the people in headquarters, I would all the time wander around and look at their face and their name tag, face, name tag, face, name tag. And I got to the point where I knew everybody in the group and they thought that was astonishing. And I thought, well, it's not really when you can memorize well. And mm -hmm. it was very important to them. I, you know, it was one of those little things that mattered. Yeah. And that's a great example of, of, of strong leadership because you recognized the importance of remembering that information too, right? So by 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 putting an emphasis on on the importance of remembering people's names, that helps you to to focus in on that and and then ultimately achieve it. That gets into the whole, 
you know, like I, I often in my book, I wrote about in new business networking, I wrote about like uh, how to remember names and, and some tips around, you know, just repeating the information out loud helps your brain perk up to think, Oh, this might be yeah. important. So just saying, Harry, oh, it's so good to meet you. You know, oh, I love that. that's a great point, Harry. Oh, yeah. it was nice to talk to you and nice to meet you, Harry. We'll talk to you again. But in the course of a conversation, of course, um, that helps you to, to retain that. And also thinking of like whether the person's name sounds like something similar or like an object or, or another sure. famous person. Um, you can kind of associate names that way. Um, so yeah, yeah, it helps. I, was, uh, I, w- I had media training cause I had some big jobs and I dealt with wall street and board of directors. Mm. And one of the tips was, um, write down the name. So I, on my right now next to me is a big piece of paper that says Dave. Mm. And, and they said, do that. So you remember their name, but also use their name and, it, it was an extraordinary way to get involved with a TV interview or radio interview. Well, Dave, um, that's cool for all sorts of little reasons. But one of the reasons is it makes people feel good. They, they feel like they're being paid attention to. Absolutely. So if you had a billboard, what would it say? <laughs> huh. Um, this is fascinating because we just had a charity auction and uh, we won a digital billboard for 30 days and we haven't figured out what we're going to put on there. Something about my speaking business. I would uh-huh. say. Um, uh, my, on my Instagram thing, I ended up with uh, saying simply trying to make a difference every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably say that and I would probably lead with something um, like um, mindset matters. Um, or something about uh, at you control your attitude. So I would say um, trying to make a difference is is literally one of my is my signature sign off line. Every day I try to make a difference, and that is personal and professional statement. And the other one has to do with um, the positivity and optimism of your mindset and your attitude. Love it, Harry. Thank you so much for joining me today. How can people get a hold of you? How can they learn more about you? Um, Harry S Campbell.com. Harry S Campbell S is in, um, Sam in the middle is my website for my speaking. And there's a link to my books and, um, there's an ask Harry and a way to contact me directly. Um, I'm a, uh, you are talking to the entire, uh, organization of Harry S Campbell.com speaking and author. I'm having a staff meeting while I talk to you. And so I, I will answer myself. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, and um, Facebook and also uh, Instagram. So if you want to follow, that's great. Um, If you need a speaker and you want uh, somebody to talk about uh, particularly leadership culture or mindset, I'd be uh, glad to engage. Just know that 100% of what you give me, 100% of the gross goes to charity. Thanks for listening to the nice podcast. I would love to include your voice on the show. If you have comments or questions regarding this episode or any episode, whether you might have some nice communications tips of your own, visit friend.nicepodcast.co. There, you can record an audio comment, and I expect you'll hear it on an upcoming episode. Theme song is Little Jane May, and the end song is Funny Feeling by Alistair Crystal at alistaircrystal.ca. And we'll see you next time. Be nice.